This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. This is definitely among our most read stories on the Bloomberg. Some bad medicine for CVS. Shares of CVS Health selling off today, down about 8.1% near their lows of the day after the company said results this year will be dragged down by rising costs and poor results from its 2015 takeover of uh, pharmacy company Omnicare. Let's get into the details. Jonathan Palmer is senior healthcare analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone right here in New York. Uh, Jonathan, what happened? Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me on. So CVS uh, reported their fourth quarter earnings today and gave us their first look at 2019 uh, guidance. And this is the first time they've really talked about what their uh, business model looks like from a financial standpoint now that they've closed their deal with Aetna. And to make a long story short, uh, the the results that came in uh, below expectations and the guidance for next year came in way below expectations. So People were thinking EPS might be as high as almost $8. Consensus was around 737 And the range that they actually see for 2019 is in the high sixes. So it's a pretty steep fall off from where expectations were on Wall Street. Jonathan, I'm just curious. What happened with the, um, the pharmaceutical company Omnicare? I mean, it, it just seems like with an aging population and they say they're struggling with fewer customers, that, that doesn't seem to jibe. No, I, I would agree with you. You know, when they did this deal a couple years ago, uh, the, the rationale for it was, you know, we want to maintain uh, our customer contact and touch, you know, throughout their entire lifespan. So maybe as somebody moves from their house into an assisted living facility or a, a skilled nursing facility, you know, CVS would be there through Omnicare to, to you know, continue delivering prescriptions. And there's been some structural changes in that market. Um, and some headwinds around reimbursement. And the acquisition itself just hasn't performed as, as planned. Now, there's another piece of the business uh, that Omnicare owned, which was a, a specialty pharmacy business, and that's actually done very well. But the, the long-term care piece uh, has definitely been a headwind the last year or two. But what's happened? I still can't get my head. Like Vince and I were talking before we got going, right? We know I've been to kind of those assisted living places and you see the amount of drugs that are being, you know, given to the individuals who are staying there. Um, so what's happened? I mean, are, aren't people still tapping into it or is it a different network that they're going to? Yeah, I think it's 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 less around, you know, the number of people in these facilities as opposed to, you know, what's happening with the uh, reimbursement around uh, drugs that are do- being delivered in those facilities. So it's not a question of the long-term demographics. I, th- I think that's still working in CVS's favor here. It's just how the market has kind of shifted to pay for that, that pharmacy service. So basically saying that, I mean, obviously we're talking about Medicare, Medicaid, the government stepping back. Regarding Aetna, for instance, if I could just flip over, if we're talking about Medicare for all and the government eventually going to have to look to cut costs somewhere to pay for this, it would seem to me the insurance companies and the margins would be the first place they would look at. So are they going to suffer the same headwinds with Aetna as they've suffered with Omnicare? 
You know, I think that that one's a little harder to predict. Um, I think we're we're probably a long way away from Medicare for all. Uh, you know, maybe we'll know in, in another year or so with the elections. But, you know, my personal view is that, you know, I, I think these bigger insurance companies are going to have to be part of the solution. And, and I don't think we'll necessarily see, you know, a, a broad mandate that kind of ruins the insurance industry for, for those participating today. So what happens now? Because, okay, they spent almost $13 billion uh, right on Omnicare, and then you have the $68 billion purchase of Insure Aetna last year. Uh, our Bloomberg News story by Robert Langreth really kind of lays out that there's so many things that are facing CVS Health right now. You've got, as we just talked about, the struggling nursing home industry. Uh, you've got fewer customers for Omnicare. You've got write-downs. You've got higher wages and employee benefits cut. Uh, also into their 2017 corporate tax overhaul. And then you've got the pharmacy benefit management services for insurers and employers under attack by Washington. You know, not good to be CVS Health right now. So what's the outlook for them? You know, I think uh, I think you covered all the bases really well there, Carol. I mean, it's, it's a challenging time for, for CVS and, and uh I think their management team is looking at, at this year as being one where there's a lot of uh, transitory headwinds in, in their business model, and, and you covered a lot of those. You know, they're kind of being uh, attacked on all sides here, if you will. But that's primarily around their legacy business on the on the you know the retail pharmacy front mm-hmm. and the pharmacy services or PBM business. I think the pathway forward for for CVS is really this integration with Aetna, and, and can they deliver on the promise of creating more value for patients, creating more value for the system, creating more value for for CVS stockholders by having done this transaction. And, you know, unfortunately, 2019 is not going to be the year where they they deliver those, you know, sea changes uh, in the business model. But I think longer term, you know, Aetna is the solution, not necessarily the problem here. Yeah, I I think you hit the nail on the head with 2019 not being their year, especially as they've announced buybacks were on hold for now. And that was kind of a big driver of of equity results previously. And just note that uh, the stock's down 8.3% on the day. So obviously not taking markets, not taking this news very well. Jonathan, one last thing. 40 seconds here. Amazon, it's always the threat, I feel like, with every industry, and that includes the healthcare industry, although I don't think we've seen much from Amazon yet on that front. You know, Amazon's been pretty quiet in in the healthcare markets of late. You know, like a year or two ago, we were talking about when will they, you know, enter the pharmacy market, and then they bought uh, PillPack, and they've been mm-hmm. radio silent ever or ever since. You know, I think one day we're going to come into work, and there's going to be an Amazon press release saying, you know, we're entering the pharmacy, and I think it remains a bit of an unknown yeah. um, what form that's going to take. But they're out there and they're working. Listen, good stuff. Great analysis. Jonathan, thank you so much. Jonathan Palmer, he's Senior Healthcare Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on this Wednesday on the phone right here in New York City. CVS Health, as you heard from Vince, that stock is definitely lower in today's session, hovering near its lows, down about 8.1%, $64.20 a share, and the stock is now down about 2% this year. Carol Master, Vince Signorella, and this is Bloomberg Radio.
So last week, this big city, New York City, um, got a bit of a jolt, a bit of a surprise. Amazon surprising many, right, Vince, by pulling out of its plans to build a second headquarters in New York. And yeah, it really was, I think, a shocker to so many. It, it was, especially, I think the biggest shock were the politicians afterwards saying, well, we were just bluffing and we thought they'd come back with a better <laughs> offer. Didn't <laughs> seem to work that way. Hasn't happened yet. So it's got many thinking about where the next wave of tech growth may occur, where the big tech companies will set up shop. Robert Bell has some thoughts on that. He is co-founder of the Intelligent Community Forum. He's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this wet, snowy, rainy, all that good stuff, uh, New York Wednesday. Nice to have you back with us. Very glad to be here. So tell me about when you heard that news on Wednesday, because I will say in the newsroom, we were all like, wait, 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 what? (laughs) What did you think? I thought that big tech was showing what it does. I mean, big tech's very powerful. Um, they're not, Amazon is not used to going into a place like New York City. You know, one of the things I think we forget is what a blip this is for New York. I mean, it's 25,000 jobs. It's important. It'll hardly show. And so this, Amazon did not find here the kind of atmosphere that they're used to. Remember, they ran a nationwide contest, and, and they had everybody, cities offering to rename themselves. That's not how New York does things. I will say it was a bit of a reality show. But having said that, cities like to attract companies and they like to diversify their company as much as they can, right? New York, great on finances. They've been building up their tech hub. I mean, this would be another avenue that helps kind of diversify the economy. So, I mean, these are the things that big cities covet. Well, they covet them, but big cities have a great deal of power. I mean, just contrast it with Google. Google's been in the city for a decade. They gradually built up one of the biggest, the Googleplex in midtown Manhattan. Mm -hmm. It's an enormous facility, and they're going to keep growing it. They just knew how to play New York. Come in, make friends, build. Yeah, that's actually the perfect analogy. I was just thinking about Google as they they just continue to build and continue to build in in almost a quiet fashion. And here Amazon comes in. Uh, something equivalent to an NFL will move our football team to your city if you build a stadium. So I could see where that would grate on politicians and basically both sides kind of coming up to the table and not wanting to be pushed around at all. You know, the sad part, of course, is is the people in Long Island City, the people who are going to be employed in those jobs. That's the part where you just stop and say, okay, we could have done this better. But it, yeah, okay. So what's the repercussions? It's interesting. Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week, um, Robert, is uh, all about real estate. We're, you know, here we are 10 years post the financial crisis, mortgage meltdown. I am wondering, though, what the, uh, the, the longer-term implications are or consequences of what happened with Amazon in New York City. Well, I think there's, I think there's consequences in New York City. I, I, you know, again, this is an enormous market, right? The really interesting story to me right now is playing out actually in the second and third, third-tier cities. Because we sort of write them off, you know, they're, they're nice little places. And yet, in, uh, in 2017, CNN did a, a, published a list of the 15 best cities in which to start a business in the United States. And I, I just looked at them, and the median population of them is 236,000. They're mid-sized small places. This is Lubbock, Texas, and Laredo, and St. Louis, Missouri, and Charlotte, North Carolina, and places that are not, very much not New York City. Um, another stat I came across while I was looking at this was, what is the what is the fastest growing state in America for population right now? Is it Texas? Wow, good question. It's Idaho. Idaho. Wow. Idaho. You know, potatoes. Idaho. And guess where the vast majority of the people who are moving into Idaho come from? I don't know. California. Huh. California. So what's going on? What's going on is that well, yeah, what's going on is that the state that is so incredibly successful in technology that it's a world brand is so expensive that nobody can live there. 
And so people who can do it are taking their talents across the border into Idaho. And they're able I mean, to I get them leaving California. So what is Idaho doing? Because I'm not going to go to Idaho unless I can get a good job. <laughs> I've got good education for my kids. It's, it's, you know, it's funny. I just came from Charleston, South Carolina, you know, where you see a lot of, you've got the Boeing facility, BMW. Uh, Google has a big data center. I was talking to folks. They say education is great for kids. And you can see really kind of these planned communities with infrastructure to support it. So again, what is Idaho doing? Well, you said the word planning, right? Idaho, first and foremost, there is this interesting thing going on. 94% of Americans right now have access. They don't necessarily subscribe to it, but they have access to broadband at 30 megabits per second or faster. That's fast enough for online collaboration, video meetings, doing data analytics, video production, all the things that we're used to, right? All the things that your listeners probably do every day. We haven't really factored that into our picture of the world. So while we're all still focusing on these big tech hubs, there is this other wave of investment happening all across America and around the world in these second and ter- third-tier cities because they're great cities to do business and in. It's also an issue of quality of life. I mean, I lived in Minneapolis for six years, and all you know about Minneapolis is minus something. But there are a lot of large companies out there, a lot of great job opportunities, yeah. and the infrastructure is is very supportive, and the schools are very supportive. It's it's a really nice place to raise a family. Well, small cities have got all these advantages, right? So if you, if you can move there, if you can move to Idaho and get your education and, and, get, and, and get the job that you want, because you're connected, right. you've got, you're living in a place that's got, you've got a chance to live in a really nice neighborhood on a middle-class wage. You've got a chance to right. raise your kids in a nice place. It's, it's, they're great, great locations. Yeah, it's interesting. And you can see just kind of the impact spreading out, especially as real estate gets more expensive in those big cities. Robert Bell, co-founder of Intelligent Community Forum, joining us. The long and winding road. Yes, indeed, a long and winding road when it comes to all things Tesla and Elon Musk. Uh, let's get into some of the latest, what we're calling kind of oops, he did it again. Dana Hull is technology reporter at Bloomberg News, and she, of course, follows Tesla and its founder for us uh, here at Bloomberg News. She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, usually out on the West Coast, but lucky for us, in town. Garrett Nelson, also with us, senior equity research analyst at CFRA Research, on the phone in Richmond, Virginia. He's got, uh, and actually reiterated his hold rating on Tesla today. Dana, let's kick it off with uh, you. So we've got another executive leading. We've got some news. Elon tweeting. You think he might have learned his lesson. What's going on? Okay. Another another crazy day. So last night, Elon Musk sent out a tweet that was about production, uh, projected production of the Model 3. And then four hours later, he revised his tweet. And as we all know, he got in trouble with the SEC for tweeting about the company during market hours. And the, the sort of thinking was that there was now like a Twitter sitter at the Tesla legal department who was sort of monitoring his or tweets. Or we hoped. Or we hoped. It's not clear whether that's happened or not. Today, Tesla announced that the general counsel, Dane Butswinkas, is leaving Tesla, going back to Williams and Connolly. He'd only been the general counsel for two months. And I don't think that the two incidents are related, but the timing just brings up this whole thing once again that like, oh, Elon and his tweets and executive departures. And that was like a big theme in 2018 that appears to be continuing into 2019. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty scary thing when somebody leaves the firm, takes a great opportunity. And you know that what that happens is two months later, he's calling up his old buddy saying, get me out of here and get me back. I mean, and and the reaction of the stock is actually somewhat muted, really. Yeah, it was interesting. I talked to Jeff Osborne at Cohen & Company today and he said, you know, investors are just kind of like numb to the turnover. It's just become par par for the course at Tesla. And to be clear, Dane Butswinkas, he never left Williams & Connolly completely. He was still a partner at the firm. So from the 
beginning, there was always this question like, well, is he really going to be GC? Is he going to be sort of like a part-time GC? Right. He's got one foot at the firm, one firm at t- foot at Tesla. Did he ever, ever actually move from Washington, D.C. to California? It's not like he ever bought it. I'm not aware that he ever like bought a house. So uh, maybe he tested the waters and it just wasn't the right fit. Right. Two months in and saying, okay, I've had enough. Hey, um, Garrett, come on in on this. We mentioned you reiterated your hold rating on shares of Tesla today. And as Vince mentioned, I mean, the stock's down 9% this year, but uh, in today's session, it's just down about 1.4%. How do you see all the news that Donna just laid out for us? Sure. So as we know, Elon Musk is a very difficult person to work for. And I think that's primarily what's behind this. Um, recall three weeks ago, their longtime CFO announced he was retiring, and then they lost their uh, chief accounting officer uh, just prior to that. So um, I wouldn't read anything more into it. Um, there are a lot of bears who are throwing around the F word, fraud. Um, when you have this this number of departures in, in this uh, short period of time, but I would point out the company has an auditor. It's PricewaterhouseCoopers. They've been the company's auditor since 2005. I really wouldn't read any more into it um, regarding it's just an extremely difficult job and it, having an extremely difficult boss. Is, I mean, part of it, you, I, I have to get re- agree with you from what I'm seeing about Musk as a difficult boss. It, it's starting to resemble the uh, the Trump cabinet is uh, the turnaround of folks in there. Do you, but do you think it has something to do with maybe people coming in and being promised what prospects uh, they're going to get in terms of bonus, et cetera, what, what the opportunities are going to be going forward with the company? And then after taking a good look at the financial statements and such, and then maybe stepping back from that and saying he's way too optimistic about the future of the company? I think it's very a very intriguing opportunity, um, given their Tesla's stated goals and how they're trying to change the world with a lot of their products and, and technologies. Um, but I think, you know, the reality of the day-to-day um, uh, operations there, and especially the amount of news flow, which is just a, a frantic pace, unlike any other company that I follow, um, makes for a much more difficult job than than any of these executives were anticipating heading heading into it. Dana, I'm curious what you're hearing from your channel checks and from inside the company. Are things calming down? Do they see, seem like they're going to be making their forecast? Does any, you know what I mean? Are things settling down at the company after a crazy 2018? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it, right? I mean, it's funny because I was like talking to the PR people and I was like, oh, I'd really like to profile Dane, your new general counsel. Like, when can I meet him? Like, has he moved out here? And it's like, oh, I'm glad I didn't like go down that road too far. Um, I mean, I would say that the culture of Williams and Connolly, like this white shoe, Washington, D.C., like defense law firm is very different from the culture of Tesla. But, you know, Tesla has very big global ambitions. They want to bring out a Model Y, a semi-truck, the Gigafactory in China. I mean, they have this laundry list of projects that are going to be really expensive to pull off. Um, But, you know, he hadn't been tweeting that much until last night. And so, you know, it was like, just when you think things are calm, they erupt again. What about their projections, though, for the Model 3, which is said to be, right, the game changer for the company, the mass market. I'm I'm doing quotation marks for everybody on radio. (laughs) But, I mean, what about their forecast and what it means for the company? Right. So originally they were supposed to make 500,000 cars in 2018. Now, as of last night, Musk was saying it'll be 2019. But then he was like, well, actually, the annualized rate will be more like 400,000. Yeah. 
ultimately, I think that they will get there. Always later than what Musk anticipates, but they will get there. Uh, but the big question for the Model 3 right now is, are they ever going to come out with a version that's only $35,000? Because they haven't yet. And that's a big deal. People right. people reserved that car thinking that it was going to be $35K, and they haven't made one at that price point yet. Especially when there's more competition coming on the market from the high end and from kind of everywhere, right? Yeah. I mean, t- to be to be fair to Tesla, they have totally disrupted the auto industry. Every mm-hmm. automaker is making an electric car now, and it's largely because Tesla proved that you could make a compelling electric vehicle. So Elon Musk deserves enormous credit for sort of pushing the auto industry into electrification. But they are still struggling with you know, high volume at high qual at high regular quality. Yeah. And one of the other things, I mean, I, you could tell me if they're still struggling with this is, um, what I hear from people I know who've bought one is they get into a little fender bender and they have to wait six weeks for parts to replace. And if you have the opportunity with a, I'll do quotes, known manufacturer who, you know, the supply chain is going to be there so that who can not only just service the car, but replace a dented whatever, or something Mm -hmm. that goes wrong. That's got to be a big challenge for Tesla to, to, to deal with in terms of market share. Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk spent much of the last earnings call talking about how improving service in North America was his top priority. He talked about how they had made these dumb decisions where they weren't keeping parts at the stores. I mean, that's kind of like basic stuff. So in some ways, he, he has to sort of learn lessons on his own, and they reinvent the wheel a little bit because this is the first time they've ever done things at this scale. Hey, Garrett, one last question to you. I mean, what are the things you're kind of focusing on that you want to see from the company, see from Tesla and Elon Musk, I don't know, over the next three to six months? Sure. So the primary reason we're cautious on the stock and we have a hold is because we're concerned about the step down in the federal electric vehicle tax credit. Mm-hmm. Um, that went from $7,500 to 3750 on January 1st. It will be cut in half again at mid-year, and then it will be eliminated completely at the end of this year. We're seeing some evidence that that's having a, a pretty significant ne- negative impact on their volume. And so we have top-line concerns, uh, both volume, but also price. They've announced price reductions and mix as they eventually introduce that $35,000 version of the Model 3. Right. Um, that's, that's significantly less than either the Model S or Model X. So Got their it. average pricing is going to be coming down. Volumes could be challenged. Right. And we think it's going to be uh, negative for their near-term earnings. Garrett Nelson over at CFRA Research from Virginia on the phone. Dana Hull, nice to have you in studio. Technology reporter at Bloomberg News. So, yeah, the house is a rockin' over at Zillow because, man, their business plan is definitely changing. Uh, You know who they are, right? They're kind of the unofficial Kelly Blue Book for American homes. Great story because these guys are actually playing a bigger role when it comes to the housing market. So let's get into it with Pat Clark. Uh, He wrote about it in the current special double issue of uh, Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It focuses on real estate. He's joining Vince and myself here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you here with us, Pat. You and I have talked about this story. Tell us a little bit about what Zillow's up to, right? Because we all talk about the um, Zestimate, right, <laughs> when it comes to Zillow. Yeah, we all know the Zestimate, and, and, and we use it and, and know Zillow because of that, or Zillow's sort of um, other brands like Trulia and StreetEasy if you're here in New York. Um, last spring, Zillow started um, effectively flipping homes. They don't like to say flipping homes. They'd say buying and selling homes, but it's more or less the same difference. But they're flipping homes. <laughs> they will buy your home. You know, it's it's a little bit more than the at a click of a button, but at a click of a button, you can request an offer from them. And they'll say, we'll buy your home for X amount of money. Um, you say, 
yes, tell me more. They'll send an inspector to your house. And, um, you know, pretty quickly after that, uh, you can close on a contract with them and 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 uh, be on your way out the door and into your next abode. But, but realistically speaking, they charge a pretty high fee for it. I mean, is it the type of person who's kind of in a hurry to get out of their home? Because you would think that if you're kind of a not in a hurry, you would wait for the traditional version of people coming in, offers, you know, to going against one another, et cetera, et cetera. I guess I'd back it up a step and say this is it's still the beginning of this business and and um we'll see how much they're able to charge for it. But basically they the the it is a convenience, right? You sell your home faster, you're willing to pay something f- for it. I think so far it's proven to be something of an elastic product. The more they charge, the less willing people are to sell them their homes, the lower they set their fee, the closer it is to uh the the five or six percent you'd sell to, you'd, you'd you'd pay a traditional agent uh the easier it is for them to buy so i did notice something in your article which i thought was intriguing because i had that experience when a company moved me from or tried to move me from one place to the other is that people are using this as a base price uh a lot of times and then going to real estate agents and saying i could definitely get this from zillow what are you going to do for me is yeah. that still the case yeah sure i mean that's that's one of the fascinating things about introducing this kind of home selling into the marketplace is that, you know, as it is, a lot of realtors use a sort of automated value estimate as a um, lead generation tool on their own websites. You pop in a little bit of information, they'll give you a very rough sort of sense of what the home is worth, and then they'll go out and try to beat it. Um, This is sort of that, but made real, because it's not just theoretically, here's what your home is worth, but we will actually pay you the money, you know, today or three days from now. Right. And so it means, okay, I don't have to maybe paint up some of the scratches the dog did, or maybe, you know, replace or wash the carpet, you know, you could just say, I'm out, I'm done. And you move on. I'm curious, though, about this kind of shift, even if it's a, it doesn't feel like a subtle shift. It seems like a potentially big shift in Zillow's business model, because we, you know, know that the investment community has been maybe scratching their head a little bit, not so all in on it. Hasn't loved it so far. It's going to be very expensive for Zillow to build this business out. They got to hire people. People have to hire contractors. They have to send guys around in trucks, you know, to go and trim the hedges and replace the pool filters. They have to borrow a lot of money, right? They're going to have to hold homes on their balance sheets for right. the, the three to six months it takes yeah, them it, to it, sell. It's almost counter of the internet movement, if you will. They're going from an inter- internet-based. Uh, company uh, selling ads, et cetera, and now going into a brick-and-mortar type business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they like to compare it to Netflix's move from just distributing content to producing their own content, but... Um you know that's that's the that's the that's the rosy view of it, right? Well, and the interesting thing, Pat, is even though our you know the the investment community is a bit critical here, and we're kind of making fun a little bit of Zillow. I mean, other folks are doing the same thing, right? There are other companies who've set up where they buy your homes, yeah, and indeed. then turn around and sell them. Indeed, there's a startup called Open Door, which has mm-hmm. raised more than a billion dollars, including I think four hundred million dollars from SoftBank, three or four hundred million dollars from SoftBank, and there's a handful of others. You've got sort of from traditional. Um, Real estate brokerages, I mean, there's some uh, some piece of um, Realogy, which owns Coldwell Banker and other um, other brokerage um, brands, is experimenting with this. There are some Keller Williams um, um, bro- local brokerages that have done a little bit of this. Other startups. Right. Um, I think that there is a, you know, there is a, 
a good chance that this will be a popular way of selling your home, at least in places like Phoenix or Las Vegas or Atlanta, where uh, the homes are all somewhat or many of the homes are similar to each other. It's relatively easy to value them. Right. Um, They don't cost so much money. You know, none of these companies wants to invest, you know, two million dollars in a house. But if they can buy a house for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, then, you know, that looks better to them. So it could take hold. It could also collapse. It's, It's very early. It's another revenue stream, right, at this point, and it also lets Zill get away a little bit from the advertising model. And what's interesting is that I know when you and I talked uh, before, those people who don't want to sell to Zillow, Zillow can sell those buyers' names to realtors, <laughs> right, who might want to use them as sales leads. So it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, shift, if you will. Pat Clark. Thank you so much. He's real estate reporter at Bloomberg News in our interactive broker studio. Check him out on Twitter at Pat underscore Clark. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Carol Master along with Vince Signorella, our Bloomberg News global macro strategist in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Let's head to Charlotte, North Carolina. Chris Zaccarelli is chief investment officer at Independent Advisor Alliance. They've got uh, $3 billion in assets under management. And, uh, of course, Chris on the phone from Charlotte. Hey, Chris, good to have you here with Vince and myself. Uh, Fed Minutes, uh, anything out there that kind of changed your thoughts when you look at uh, the market outlook here? For the most part, we saw in the minutes a lot of what we were expecting based on what Jay Powell had already said at the at the press conference following the last meeting. They did provide some interesting updates on the balance sheet, though. It looks like the, the majority of Fed members are looking to communicate the end of the balance sheet runoff, and I think that is a little bit of a change. They've been talking about um, taking the balance sheet off the table, but I'm surprised that they're actually going to be putting something in place as soon as the end of this year. So that was a little bit of, of new news. Yeah, with that new news, does that worry you a little bit? I mean, if the Fed was sitting at around a $4 trillion balance sheet, things that they need to leave that much liquidity in the market or that much still QE if you want, is really what it is. Um, in, instead of the markets rallying on that, wouldn't, wouldn't you think that would, would make some people a little worried? Well, I think part of what the market was having trouble with in the past was that the Fed was both hiking rates as well as letting the balance sheet run off. And so there were some people who believed that both of those happening in parallel was a little bit too much for the markets to bear, and that was contributing a little bit to tightening to financial conditions. So to the extent that they can put that, take one of those off the, or take both of those off the table for now and then leave some flexibility going forward, I think that's why the market is taking that in stride. Uh, to your point, the fact that they have so much in reserve is definitely concerning because that was done in an emergency fashion more than 10 years ago, and now here we are still leaving it on the balance sheet. But I think in their minds, they can take the balance sheet down at a slower pace when, when conditions warrant. But for now, there's just so much uncertainty out there. They just want to take that worry off the table for, for market I mean, could we potentially, and Vince, let me bring you in and ask you as someone who's traded on the desk, I mean, would there be a conversation out there that potentially maybe the Fed never completely exits? I mean, it, well, I think, sorry, go ahead, please. It, you, 
<laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Was that question for me? Sorry about that. Well, I'm interested in both of you because, you know, Chris, Vince used to do some trading. So let me just – I'm just curious, Vince, from a trader's perspective. I mean, would that be maybe a conversation we're having – what you might be having? Well, the Fed has always had a balance sheet. And it's usually – it's always been historically somewhere around, let's say, a trillion. Okay. And they were talking about bringing this balance sheet down to two and a half trillion giving us a reserve buffer of $1.5 for the bank's balance sheets if the excess reserve conversation. Now they're talking about stopping at $4 trillion. If you really look at it historically, that's a $3 trillion reserve, not $1.5 trillion. I mean, that's Fed speak saying it's one and a half. So to me, that means QE forever. Um, right. And doesn't doesn't say all that positive things about where the economy could go without the Fed. And that's why I wanted Vince to say that, Chris, because he and I were having kind of a discussion off air. Like we're looking at those Fed minutes and, and we're just kind of wondering, man, what are we all missing? What might the Fed be seeing that maybe things aren't as rosy as everybody seems? I mean, you know, you have folks from the administration coming out and talking 4% economic growth. Uh, you know, people talking about rate increases later in the year. So what might we be missing? Well, I think a lot of those more rosy projections would be in the place of, of trade negotiations not being ongoing. Given all the fiscal stimulus that we had, given how strong the economy was, if we didn't go into this trade war with China, or at least trade negotiation with China, I think that was the big wild card. I think that put a lot of uncertainty into U.S. corporates. It obviously put a lot of uncertainty into Europe and, and China as well, wondering, will these tariffs go into effect? Will they be ratcheted up? When will this be resolved? All of that uncertainty has spilled over from just being a negotiation and being a news item to, I think, having an impact on the real economy. And I think that's when the Fed stood up and took notice. They originally were fine with the market starting to sell off, but when the market went close to hitting a bear market going down almost 20% on, on December 24th, I think that's when they realized that tightening financial conditions were getting a lot tighter than they were originally anticipating, and I think that's what's changed everything. Now, I don't know that the minutes today say that the Fed has stopped running off the balance sheet and that's it. I think what the minutes are saying is by the end of the year, they'd like to announce a plan so that people would know when the balance sheet would stop running off. But, but, but absolutely, the ending result of what's going to happen with the balance sheet is going to end up with a much higher market value than I think anyone was anticipating. I don't believe the Fed was ever anticipating going from $4 trillion down to just $1 trillion, but I do think they wanted to go from $4 trillion to $2 trillion. They had indicated something along those lines. I think to Vince's point, we may end up at $3 trillion or even $3.5 trillion, which is much larger than what they originally anticipated. So what the impact that is to markets remains to be seen. But for now, I think the, the main point of what they're trying to do is just to take some of that balance sheet runoff off the table as a concern for investors. Let's get through this uncertainty in terms of what happens with trade negotiations with China. Right. Once those uncertainties are lifted, I think they can reevaluate. And, and we may continue to see some more tightening in terms of rate increases as well as balance sheet runoff, but so, not right uh, now. There's going to be a pause. Pivoting away from the Fed on the segue to China, um, it, it feels like the market is comfortable with that a memorandum of understanding is going to come into play at the end of this month and that tariffs are going to be at least postponed for a while. Do you think that's going to be enough to keep us rallying? Because I'm watching the markets. You'd, you'd expect to see the NASDAQ you know, leading the way, or at least going forward, the NASDAQ to lead the way. Tech brought us down. Tech should bring us back up. It, will that be enough for markets, a memorandum of understanding, or we're we going to need something more concrete? I think we're going to need something more. I think what's consensus is that we do get that memorandum of understanding and the can gets kicked down the road slightly. Trump has been making 
uh, comments to that effect saying, well, March 1st is not a magic, magic date. Things are going well. So I think the market's expecting that. If we get that, I think that doesn't do anything to help the market go higher. If for some reason we did not get that, that definitely would be a negative for markets. So what drives the market higher is going to have to be more positive news out of those trade negotiations, not just that the negotiations are ongoing and that we've postponed that March 1st increase from 10% to 25%, right. but actual progress and, and some, some light at the end of the tunnel for when these negotiations will conclude and Got then it. we will have an actual agreement in place. Yeah, and then let's not forget that. Then we move on to negotiations with the European Union on autos and, you know, the trade talks continue. Hey, Chris, thanks so much. Chris Zaccarelli, Chief Investment Officer at Independent Advisor Alliance, uh, on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. They've got about $3 billion in assets under management. Yeah, the China negotiations are going to continue to uh, impress, I should say, because what people, I think, are really looking for is the there's been talk of a targeted summit between Presidents Xi and Trump. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, if you look at the way Trump has acted in all these trade negotiations and with a little bit of his personality mixed in, you hardly expect a trade deal to happen if he doesn't have his thumbprint on it. And that may be in person with the president of China. And we've had some great, you know, uh, opinion pieces. Um, Kyle Bass writing about, you know, this is a very interesting time for the president. He really has kind of a great advantage because China's in a tough spot, right? They've got a lot of debt. Uh, The economy is still growing, but not as strong as it used to. And maybe the U.S. has a little bit of the upper hand, maybe in some of these trade negotiations to be able to push for some of those hotter issues like IP and so on. Who blinks first? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. There's still a low talking. That's a good thing so far. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.